we're going to tackle one of the most bizarre verses in the Bible this morning. So I don't know if you looked it up ahead of time, but uh, we'll get to that in just a second. But uh, we, uh, I want to kind of give a background from last week to set the stage for today before I read the scripture. Because there's something that I wish I had preached last week that I didn't. <laughs> I just caught it later as I was kind of studying some more. So you know how we talked about when Adam was given Eve, he was so excited that he sang a song saying, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And he was just so enamored with her beauty and that God had given him this amazing gift that he sang a song to her about, to his bride, about how much he loved her. And then last week we saw a story that was the total opposite, the total antithesis of that. And that was by a very selfish, egotistical guy named Lamech. And what does Lamech do? He sings to his brides about how much he loves himself. What a contrast between Adam and Lamech. You know? and, and also there was another contrast that I missed. I hate to say this, but I'd better late than never, right? Lamech, if you remember the story, he proudly sings a song about how some young man wounded him and he just brutally killed the guy. And he bragged about, hey, God said if, if anybody kills Cain, he's going to be punished sevenfold. He said, you think that's something? Anybody kills me, 77-fold. So he's just like Bain saying, I, I'm so much. You think Ad, Cain was big and bad, I'm bigger and badder. And so he, he brags about this, and he, he brags about killing a young man unjustly, but then when you contrast that with the gospel, Jesus humbly teaches about being killed as a young man unjustly. Everything points to Jesus, doesn't it? I heard something fascinating uh, a few months ago, and it was pastors talking about teaching the Old Testament. And they said, if you teach the Old Testament in a way that any Jewish person or Muslim would be perfectly happy, you've taught it wrong. Because you need to point to Jesus, because that's what it all points to, and that's where the Muslims and the Jews would have an issue. Another thing I want to review from last week that's so important, and because if you didn't catch it, it really sets the tempo for what we're about to talk about. In the genealogy that is found here in the passage we covered last week, each man's name has a meaning, just like your name has a meaning. And parents, by the way, I, I really encourage you to name your kids with meaning, okay? I won't go off on that right now, but um, Adam you see each of the names right there, I won't read them all. But when you put them all together, as we saw last week, if you weren't here last week, you, you may not have seen this, but if you look at all their names, and then you put it together in a sentence, it's, man is appointed moral sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down, teaching that his death shall bring to the despairing comfort and rest. Isn't that amazing? I just find that, that there are parts in the Bible we don't understand, and we just dismiss it in our ignorance as, and well, it just doesn't make sense. No, how about we don't make sense? Just because there's something, like, I have no clue how to do calculus. I, I have no clue. I couldn't even begin to start. Does that mean calculus is dumb? No, it means Gary's dumb, okay? So when you come across parts of the Bible you don't understand, don't chalk it up as in, well, there's problems with the Bible. A lot of people do that. Then chalk it up as in, I just need to learn and understand what the Bible is trying to teach. Um... So today's scripture reader is me, because <laughs> so, um, a lot of people don't make it, including one I had lined up. But uh, here we go. It says, Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. 
Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years. So you can do the math there and find out that he's the oldest living man in the Bible. And he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then we transition to chapter 6. It said, When man began to multiply on the face of the earth, and the daughters, of men were, daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives as they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. And let's read verse 8 together. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true, it is perfect, it is inspired. Lord, give us eyes of understanding. May your Holy Spirit teach us this morning what we need to know. Lord, we live in a generation that's very similar to Noah's, that that's what you told us it would be like. Help us to be like Noah. Lord, we need your grace. We need your favor this morning. Help us to find favor in your eyes this morning as you teach us from your word in Jesus' name. And everybody said, there was a show decades ago called Friends. You'll still see young people wear t-shirts with, about Friends. It may have been one of your favorite shows. <laughs> I don't know. But um, there's been some research done on this show, and it's been reported, I don't know, why, it's old research, but it's just been in the news lately, that these six characters in the show Friends had a combined 85 sexual partners in the 10 years that the show was going on. So can you think, uh, I, don't, don't raise your hand, but is there a 10-year part of your life where you had 85 and of course, if you divide this by six, it comes out to 14 and a half partners per person. So can you think of a 10-year period in your life where you had 14 different sexual partners over a 10-year span? I hope not. We had bad names for people like that, okay? Um, but this show promoted this as, and these weren't like sleazy people. These were popular, cool people, and that this was normal. That was the whole goal of the show, was to normalize promiscuity to normalize what we would call immoral, to normalize what would be considered loose and, and just careless with the greatest, one of the greatest gifts God has given us, and that's sexual relations. And this, is what, this was the beginning of, and people looked at this and they just laughed. Yeah, but now I know, but it's funny. And I will admit to you, here's, this exposed to me 
my inconsistency. Because I used to be a big fan of this show, Seinfeld. I loved Seinfeld. I, I, could, I could quote Seinfeld things. And in fact, we, my family we would talk about Seinfeldisms, you know, you know, jokes about what Kramer would say or Elaine would say or whatever. And um, you know, we would joke about how you know, if someone was living differently, yeah, but not there's anything wrong with that, you know, that was, was a common line from Seinfeld. And then I, I stopped watching it for a while just because I just got busy and I wasn't, I wasn't watching t that kind of TV and I really wasn't thinking I was against the show. In fact, I used to be really against the show Friends because of that, but I, I had my Seinfeld going on. And I remember one year for Christmas, somebody bought me season four of Seinfeld, like the whole season on DVD. So one day when I was home watching the kids and because uh, one of them was six, so I stayed over and watched watch the kids. I thought, I'm going to watch Seinfeld. And it gets an episode, I'm like, ooh, that's not good. Let's skip the next episode. Ooh, that's not good. Let's wait. I went through like every episode and realized there was something sexually explicit, in, or not explicit, but suggestive in every single episode, every single one. They say it's a show about nothing, but it's not. And most of it, 90% of it's about nothing, but there was always that 10% that they had to slip in something. And I'm sure if you did the, the counted up the number of sexual partners Jerry had, it would probably be more than 14, okay? And so I realized, you know what? I'm a hypocrite. I'm so pro-Seinfeld, but I'm knocking friends. And I realized, no, I, and I, I, just, I just threw the whole DVD series in the trash. Don't tell the person that gave it to me. But anyway, we, what was happening here in the 80s and the 90s is they were trying to normalize this stuff. And the Bible says when you sow to the wind, you reap the whirlwind. We would say, oh, well, yeah, it's not that bad. And now look what our kids are saying today. It's not that bad. And we're like horrified by what they're doing but it started with us. It started with our generation. It started, you know, with the sexual revolution of the 70s and bled over into the 80s and the 90s, and now look what's happening to our world. Things are spinning out of control, and that, that's what happens. When even in your, let me just tell you this, parents, and you need to know this, especially you with young kids, even with, with teens. What you do in moderation, your kids will do in excess. What you think is just an inch, they will turn into a mile. And so be really, really careful about your own hypocrisy and that we, we, for the sake of our children, say no to certain things. So as we look at this passage, I want to divide up into four areas. Number one, based on the example of Enoch, we're going to talk about how to walk with God. How to walk with God. That's a good thing, amen? Walking with God. Number two, we're going to talk about how God provides a godly line. A godly line. Number three, we're going to talk about how evil attacks the godly line. And then we'll finish up with the good news about how God responds to evil. How God responds to evil. So the first thing, let's talk about how to walk with God. Enoch walked with God, and this one word stood out to me this week, after he fathered Methuselah. So here's Enoch, hundreds of years old, and it kind of implies that he probably really wasn't walking with God until Methuselah was born. Moms and dads, do you, ever, do you remember back when one of your kids was born and it kind of was a paradigm shift for you? Like your whole world changed? I remember when my oldest son, Adrian, was born. That's not a picture of him, by the way. It's just a stock photo. Anyway, uh, he was cuter than that. But I remember the nurse handing Adrian to me, and I am 21 years old going, it's time to grow up, Gary. <laughs> I Seriously, up to that point, I was an immature, selfish jerk, and all of a sudden, the lights just came on like, I've got another human being totally dependent upon me now. And I've got to go out there and make a living. And it was like, 
a flip switched and I just started becoming the most industrious guy, became good at making uh, money, became, I started making good grades, which I'd never done in my life. I mean, I was always a, a failure in school from first grade all the way through you know, high, until my senior year and then through college. And then when, especially when this happened, it was like all of a sudden I just wanted to make good grades and make lots of money to provide for my family. And it, I think something like that must have happened to Enoch. That all of a sudden he matured and grew up and not just became financially or academically responsible, but he started to walk with God. And, and you need to pray for one another that God, if someone's not walking with God, that God flips that switch, that something happens. And it could be a positive thing like the birth of a child. But unfortunately, because we as humans are so stubborn, sometimes it's a negative thing. It's the, sometimes it's the loss of a child, the loss of a marriage, the loss of a job, that we're like, oh, I really need to walk with God. Let us choose this morning to walk with God before, preemptively, before something bad has to happen. We're, we're waiting for even something good to happen. It's your choice. But sometimes God brings these things in our life to wake us up. But he walked with God. It's interesting what word is chosen here. It doesn't say he ran with God. It doesn't say he sat down with God. The word walk is, is so amazing. And, and we're going to talk about, let's just think about, how do you go for a walk with anyone? How many of you married couples like to go for walks together, right? Tammy and I get to do that occasionally, and we like to have conversations. And you think about that. If I say, hey, Tammy, you want to go walk the dogs with me tonight? First of all, if you're going to go on a walk with someone, it requires leaving the path that you're on. You might be walking one direction, and someone says, hey, you want to walk with me? And you're like, oh, well, okay. And you turn and you go their direction. And that's what God is calling all humans to do, is leave the path you're on, go for a walk with me. And we think somehow we're entitled that, oh, I, everyone chooses their own path. No, the path you are destined, the path that you're created to walk on is the path with God, to, to walk with God. And so it may require repentance. It may be, there may be a certain part of your path that's not good that you have to walk away from to walk with God. And the second thing is you need to trust that where they're taking you. You say, God says, hey, come walk with me. Okay, yeah, where are we going? Well, you'll see. Just come walk with me. And sometimes there's hills and there's valleys and sometimes there's dark places that God may walk us through. But just like David prayed, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me. And what is David doing in that song? He's walking with God through even a difficult time. Thank God for difficult times. And when we're walking, we don't just walk in silence, do we? We have a conversation while you walk. That's part of walking with someone. That's the that's the best part of walking with someone is the conversation. And so you're talking and they're talking and you're listening, hopefully, and they're listening. You know, it's interesting. I, I hear people say this often and it's unfortunate and I, I try not to let my face show my disappointment or, or, or have any type of remark. I just like, oh, nod, you know. They're like, well, you know, I don't really read the Bible, but I pray all the time. I'm thinking, that's not good. How would you like for your spouse to never listen to you, but just blah, 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 and you're like, hey, do I ever get a turn? Do I get to talk here? And I would think if you weigh who has what's more important to say, I think it would be the scale be heavily tilted towards God, right? And so God has given us two ears and one mouth so that we do twice as much listening as we should do talking. And so I'm not saying don't pray. I'm saying listen to God by taking in the word of God and pray, talk to God, do both. But if you're walking down a path with a much wiser 
person, I think you should do more listening than talking. Again, God wants to hear us talk, but not to the removal of the listening part. Also, when we're walking with someone, we have to realize it's not a race. It's not how fast you walk. It's just that you walk with them. And that progress is made one step at a time. And that that's so important because I often see people who come to Christ and they want everything in their life to change like this. And we live in an instant society. You know, we want the microwave to go ding and then there it is, it's ready, everything's ready. And it just doesn't work that way. And, and you know, if, if you struggle with your sin at all, which I'm sure you do like me, that you wish you would make progress faster. You wish you would kick this faster. You wish you would be more mature now. You wish that you knew your Bible better now. And you just have to realize it's one step at a time, one step at a time. But when you're consistent and you stay with it, you will make progress over time. Um, and then we see that you don't want to stray from the path. If God's walking this way and you decide to take a diversion and go off track, it can lead to painful consequences. There's things off the trail where, that are dangerous, and now you're going into them, but you're leaving the presence of the one who can protect you. And disobedience does that. First John 1 says, you know, if you walk in darkness, you're lying and don't do the truth. You can't say, I have fellowship with God, but I'm walking in darkness. We need to walk in the light as he is in the light. Another thing about an observation about just walking with someone is that if you do stray from the path, the sooner you get back on, the better. How many of you older adults can say that's true, amen? <laughs> you know that's true. You know that man, you may have had a time in your life where you strayed from God and you wish you'd gotten back sooner because you just can't get those months back. You can't get those years back. You know, we need to get back on track. It doesn't mean that God cannot use your mistakes, your sins, your flaws, your failures. He will use all of it. Thank, thank the Lord he does. But life would be so much better and less painful if we would just stay on the path and when we do stray, get back on as soon as possible. Hebrews 11 says, by faith, we know, in fact, we know more about Enoch from the New Testament than we do from the Old Testament. It says, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. Now think about that. Hebrews also tells it's appointed unto man, what? Once to die, and after this is judgment. So I believe that that promise will be fulfilled. Enoch has not died. God translated him, as some people put it, and he's in heaven now. But I think that he will taste death. Anybody have a guess of when that might be? I know, Patrick, you probably know. Well, so, yeah, and, and, uh, Andre, that's your name, right? Andre? <laughs> Sorry, I like that. Um, see, a lot of people think the two prophets that we'll see in Revelation are Moses and Elijah. No, no, I think it's Enoch and Elijah, because those are the two guys that never died. Enoch was taken up, and Elijah was taken up in a whirlwind, in, in a chariot of fire, right? And so I think God's going to send them, those two guys back to be the two prophets to proclaim the gospel throughout the world after we're raptured out, and they'll share the gospel message and they'll be persecuted and killed, martyred for that. But God will resurrect them after four days, which I don't know why four and not three. I don't, but anyway, it's interesting. Um, I'm not preaching Revelation this morning, but that's an interesting observation. that These two guys will keep that appointment. And it says, and he was not found because God take, had taken him. And some people put it this way. You know, Enoch and God are going for a walk and they're walking. And God's like, you know, we've come so far. Why don't we just go back to my house? <laughs> and just let you come home and not go back to your house. And it says, he was commended as having pleased God. That ought to be the prayer for everyone in this room, to your life, that, that say people would point to you and say, wow, 
that person pleased God. You know, you could be known for a lot of things. You could say, that person is a great athlete. That person is very intelligent. That person is musically talented. That person is so good looking. Whatever. But number one on the list, our desire should be, that person pleased God. That, that's what it means to walk with God. Jude 14 also talks about Enoch. It says, it was also about these, that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, remember Enoch was the seventh from Adam, and Lamech, the bad Lamech, was the seventh from Cain, and so therefore they were both perfectly good or perfectly evil. Again, not sinless, but anyway, it says, and what did Enoch talk about? The Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment. It was interesting, before the first coming, Enoch is prophesying about the second coming and talking about how judgment is going to come. In verse 15, he says, and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. You kind of get a theme here? Ungodly, ungodly, ungodly. Okay, it's the, it's the trinity of ungodliness here. In such an ungodly way, and that all the harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So he's preaching. He's not preaching positive, feel-good messages. He's preaching about your ungodliness, the people's ungodliness in the day that they lived. So let's go also how to God provides a godly line. That's the next thing this passage teaches us. We saw last week that Cain has a lineage and Seth has a lineage. Abel doesn't because he's been deceived. He's, before he could have kids, evidently, or before that was even recorded, he was killed by his brother. We see that there's two names in common. It's not a contradiction. There's a good Enoch and a bad Enoch. There's a, a good a Lamech and a bad Lamech. It's just names in common, just like you have in your family tree. And so what, is God, what God is going to do is he's going to bring a Messiah through the line of Seth. And God needs to preserve this thing because they have to be related to Adam. And that chain can't be broken. That's important. We'll talk about that in a second. So in Luke 23:23, you see the lineage of Jesus. It starts with Jesus and it goes backwards. And you see some prominent names in this list. I purposely made it small because I wanted you to see the whole list here that we have Joseph in the line of Jesus. We've got Joshua in the line of Jesus. We've got Judah in the line of Jesus because the prophecy was that he would be of the, be of the lion, the line of Judah and the lion of Judah. And they also we see David in that. We see Boaz in that. All the, and all these miraculous marriages are leading up to Jesus and, 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 and his right to the throne. We also see it go, Jake, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are all in this lineage. Shem. Okay, what's interesting is Shem was not the oldest, but every time Noah's sons are listed, Shem is, even though he was born third, he's listed first. Why? Because he was the one that was leading to the seed of the Messiah. Noah's there, the good Lamech's there, Methuselah's there, Enoch's there, Jared, Mahalalel, Canaan, or Canaan, Enos, Seth, Adam, and Adam was the son of God. And you see Jesus' lineage, his genealogy, traced all the way back to Adam and Adam being produced by God. This is important because what God is doing, this line can't be broken. From Adam to Jesus, this line is the production of the Messiah, the second Adam. So we see this guy named Methuselah, and what's interesting about his name is, his name is, when he dies, it shall come. What's, what's going to come? Well, they knew now the flood. It means the judgment of God. When he dies, and sure enough, I believe that when Methuselah died, two weeks later, they entered into the ark. And so God allowed, if you, if you study this carefully, it appears that 
All the people in the godly seed, God allowed to die before the flood happened. But you don't see the record of others dying. In fact, we have no record that Cain died. But we believe it's possible that all the ungodly line, many of them died in the flood because they were receiving God's judgment. Which is another picture of the, the rapture. The rapture, the Bible says we will be saved from wrath through him. If the tribulation is God pouring out his wrath on planet earth, well, if Jesus took the wrath of God for us on the cross, why would we be here? And so you see that we're taken out, and just like Noah's family is protected by the ark, that the ark is a picture of Jesus Christ, and other people suffer by the flood of God's judgment. So Methuselah was 969 years. I do believe that all these years were literal, and I believe it was because of nature. The atmosphere of the earth was much different than it was after the flood. And so then it talks about Lamech, and Lamech called his, his name Noah, saying, and this is interesting, he's making a prophecy over his son. He's saying, I'm going to call him Noah because Noah means rest or, or comfort. And here's why I'm going to call him that. Because out of the ground that the Lord God has cursed, so Lamech is very well aware because he knew Adam. He knew about the curse. He knew that farming was tough because of this. This one, this Noah, shall bring relief from our work and the painful toil of our hands. Did that happen? It didn't happen. Does that mean the Bible's wrong? No, it means Lamech, just like Eve, was wrong. What did Eve think when Cain was born? Here's the Messiah. God told me that my seed would, would crush the head of the serpent. Well, no, it would be one of your ancestors, but it wouldn't be the first one. So Eve, Eve named Cain this way, thinking he was the one. Lamech is also thinking that Noah possibly could be the one. But, but Lamech's, Lamech's wrong. I don't believe the Bible's wrong, because those things didn't happen. Now, some people read it as in, no, he's going to bring relief from the consequences of the curse, and he's going to save us from the flood. That might be a stretch. I'm not really sure. But you see, Lamech lived after father Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were, what a great number, 777 years. And again, I believe it's literal. See, how many of you are familiar with Aesop's fables? Raise your hand. You, you remember that, right? Okay. So you have to make up stuff about the fox and the grapes, you know, or the lion and the mouse. You have to make that up to, for it all to mean something. God makes history happen and then makes the symbols of the history mean something. Isn't that interesting that God, we have to make things up to make a story with meaning. God orchestrates history to give meaning to his story. I believe that that's not a coincidental number. I believe Lamech was the seventh from Adam. I believe him dying 777 was important there. But this also, we were at a funeral yesterday for Rakim Robinson. And one of the things Patrick and Tammy and I were talking about was, why does it seem like some of the best people die young? You know, like, why them? Why not this drug dealer over here? Why would you take Laura? Why would you take Susan? Why would you take Rakim? Why would you take, and you can just go down the list of your good people, right? And, and one of the things we said, you know, we'll never fully understand why God does that, but one thing we do understand is it's a message to the rest of us. Hey, we need to step up. We need to step up. You know, their life is an example. And Lamech, everybody around him is living 800, 900 years, and he dies maybe 200-ish, you know, 180 years or less than everybody else. Why? Because it was time for other people to step up, possibly. So it's not how long you live. It's what you do with the years God gives you. Um, so after Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. But again, if you look at it carefully, Japheth is the oldest, but he's not listed first. Another thing that's interesting here, and I never realized till this week, 
is, I believe, like it said about all the other people, that he had other sons and daughters. I believe Noah had other sons and daughters. That's not just a speculation, because there's another verse in the previous chapter that talks about Noah's granddaughters, but his kids aren't even old enough to have kids yet. So unless Japheth got married at 10 and then had kids, and then they had kids at 10, you know, super young, and I don't even know if those numbers even add up. That's just a stretch. We're talking about Noah's older sons having kids. because, uh, And that also means that did Noah not have any kids till 500? That's not likely at all. So what I'm getting to is Noah got in the ark with three of his sons knowing that some other sons, daughters, granddaughters were out there and died in the flood. So we kind of think Noah and his whole family all had it all together, but they didn't. I mean, some of them did. And it even makes you wonder, did all three of these boys just go along with dad and just like, ah, I know this is crazy, but I guess we'll just do it. And he, I want to be respectful of my dad. And then once they got on the ark and the rain started flooding, like, whoa, this is real. Maybe, they, maybe it was Ham that got on there and said, you know, we'll sit inside this boat for a few days. And when the, when the food starts running out and it doesn't rain, maybe we'll get out, you know. But then they realized, whoa, and this boat's to- tossing and turning and all that stuff. And maybe they became believers on the ark. We don't know. But it, it makes for some healthy, sanctified speculation. Think about what was all happening. But even more importantly, that Noah had kids who didn't get on. And, and God forbid that we have kids who don't come to Christ. Can, you, can I just say this morning that your number one priority in life is that your kids know Christ? And that the, the children of Revolution Church and the teens of Revolution Church, that every single one of them hear the gospel, hear it clearly, but just as importantly that we live the gospel. God forbid that any one of us would be a deterrent to the gospel. Like that They would point to our hypocrisy and say, well, that's why I'm not a Christian, because my parents or some man in our church or some person in our church, whatever. And you've heard, man, how many of us have heard stories who say, yeah, I don't go to church anymore because I got hurt. You know, again, you still go to the dentist. You probably had a bad dentist somewhere in your life, and you just found a new dentist, right? Anyway, so let's go to the third thing here. So God's providing this godly line from Seth, but Satan knows, wait a minute, this is how the Messiah is going to come. If I can mess up the line, if I can cut the line, Messiah won't come, and I'll be the ruler of this earth. So when man began to multiply on the face of the land, okay, God, God told him to be fruitful, multiply, and they're doing what families do, and daughters were born to them. Now, it's interesting. The previous chapters were all about the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, and now all of a sudden we're going to talk about the daughters. What a contrast here, as you'll see. And they, they were born to them. Then the sons of God, so what does that phrase mean? Now, if you go to the New Testament, that's us. But we're not in the New Testament, right? Biblical interpretation all depends upon what one word? Context, context, context. We're in the Old Testament. What does the phrase sons of God mean in the Old Testament? It never means us. It never means believers. In fact, all throughout the Old Testament, three times in Job, sons of God is referring to angels. Okay? Sometimes it's referring to positive angels. Sometimes referring to fallen angels, but it's always referring to angels. Okay, so here's what's happening here, and this is my interpretation. And we can—I'll give you several possible interpretations, but uh, you choose which one you think is right. Um, The sons of God saw that the daughters. So these angelic beings 
who are now are the fallen ones, because good angels wouldn't do this, right? Saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took them as their wives as they chose. It's interesting. This is like a hyperlink back to Eve. Eve saw that the fruit was attractive, and she took. See how the word's there? This is, this is one of those hyperlinks. And so both were off limits. Of all the trees of the garden, you could freely eat. But she has to choose this one. And, and God also told the angels, hey, these human beings are off limits, but these fallen angels are going to break God's law in the situation. And what's, here's the irony in this passage. The evil one, Satan, the serpent, makes the forbidden fruit look attractive to the woman. And now women, who are the forbidden fruit, if you will, to the evil angels, now look attractive to them. Just, just an amazing irony in this situation. In fact, there's a chiasm in this passage right here. You see in verse 1 that when men began to multiply, multiply means be fruitful, multiply, have kids, and then the second part of verse 4 says they bore children, which is part of the being fruitful and multiplying. And then it moves inward that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took them as their wives and they chose. And then verse 4 parallels it, talking about the sons of God came into the daughters of men. So what does a chiasm do? It points us to what's the most important point of the passage. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120. What a drastic reduction. God's like, you know what? You guys live so long, you don't learn any lessons. You live seven, eight, hundred, nine years, 900 years, and you're not learning anything. In fact, the longer you live, the more you can sin. So I'm knocking the age level down. And of course, this will be post-flood too. That'll contribute to it. But to 120 years. And how many years did Noah preach? 120 years, okay? So God's saying, you know, many of you are going to die off before this flood and after that. And then, of course, God adjusts the age level a couple times in the Bible. Here he says in, in, um, that my spirit will not abide in man forever. I'm not going to let him live as long as I've let him live. And so it'll be 120 years. So you see that drop off. And you, when you study the Bible, and again, this only makes sense if you, if you take these ages literally, you got people, Adam living 930, Methuselah 960, which he was the higher than most, Noah 950, but then in a dramatic drop-off, and you'll see it continue to decline, Abraham, Isaac, J Jacob, Moses, Joshua, okay? And so they get it on to 120 years. But then things continue to change, and God adjusts the life again in Psalm 90, verse 10. He says, the years of our life now are 70, and if even by reason of strength, if you really want to live hard and you try hard and stay healthy, you might live around 80. And to this day, what do people live? In the 70s and 80s. And so the Bible is very clear about that. It's interesting, um, um, James Madison University did a study, a biological study on human bodies, and if there was no, if people ate like almost perfectly and worked out almost perfectly, how long would a human body live? And without any reference to the Bible, they said about 120 years. That your body, if you don't block your arteries, and you don't have a stroke, you don't get hit by a bus, you, you, and you take really good care of yourself and eat right, your body's eventually going to wear out and you'll live to approximately 120. Interesting that once again, the Bible's right. So verse 4 says, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. Now, the Nephilim, some people believe were giants, okay? And some people believe that the angels uh, cohabiting with women produced this. But notice that the timing is not there. The Nephilim are on the earth in those days, and then also afterwards, this cohabitation happened. 
So, and I don't believe the word Nephilim means giants, okay? I used to think that, but I think it means just mighty men, okay? I don't think, they could fall into the category of Goliath-type people, okay? Now, some people might say, hey, wait a minute, but weren't the Nephilim mentioned after the flood? Remember, what's, what story do you hear about the Nephilim? Anybody know? I'll be really impressed if somebody gets this one. Okay, so remember, go ahead, Patrick. Look at you. Yes. And they sent how many spies? Twelve. Twelve. And two said, hey, we can do this. Let's go. God's on our side. And ten of them like, no, no, we can't do it because there's Nephilim in the land. I think they were lying. I think they were, they had the wrong, they had what's called, the Bible calls it the evil report. I don't think that the guys were giants in the land. And I don't mean, I'm talking about, I'm not talking about Goliath. I'm talking about like abnormal, like superhuman type giants. I think that their, their report was evil, so we can't trust what they said because the Bible says that the Nephilim were taken out. That was part of the reason God did the flood. And so, anyway, that timing doesn't work out, but again, I'm, I'm willing to uh, debate that or be wrong on that. So once this cohabitation happens, they bore children to them. Now you think, how did that happen? Angelic beings, which are spiritual, with women who are physical, well, how many times, in the, first of all, Every time in the Bible, what gender is assigned to angels? Always male. Now, it doesn't mean there's not female angels. If there are, they just weren't worth mentioning for some reason. But anyway, so all of your little statues of blonde-haired, blue-eyed women with wings, just throw them in the trash or sell them to the garage sale or something like that. I don't know. Or don't put any stock in them anyway. But um, they're always male, so that part works, right? But, and then when you see Gabriel... Or even the two angels at the tombstone, uh, at the tomb, I mean, of Jesus, they have a physical body. At least they appear to have a physical body. But let's just say that's just an appearance. Well, let's fast forward to Revelation. The Antichrist, okay? He gets up, takes over the world. He suffers a head to a wound to his head. He dies, and he resurrects. But Revelation tells us that Satan entered into him. So here's a physical man, the Antichrist, who comes back to life, but he comes back to life because Satan is in him. So Satan can possess a physical body. When, the, when this demons asked Jesus to cast them out, where did they want to be cast to? Into pigs, to some type of physical body. So here's my theory on what's happening here. I believe that there was men who became demon-possessed, and that's what caused this. And this is what Satan is trying to do is mess up this godly line. And so these men, these offspring, were the mighty men, not necessarily giants, that were of old, and men of renown. They just became mighty warriors. So again, what, what in the world is going on in this bizarre, crazy passage? Well, there's two primary theories, and really three, but I'll just stick to two. Num number two is like it has two variations. First of all, some people think that when it talks about the sons of God, it's just talking about godly people who were in Seth's line, and the daughters of men were the not godly people, Cain's line. There's no angels involved here at all. But again, that phrase, sons of God, doesn't mean that anywhere else in the Bible. And so we let Scripture interpret Scripture. So I don't believe this one. I think the minority of theologians hold to this view. And then the second view, as I've already kind of explained, that the sons of God here are fallen angels and the daughters of men are human females. Now, let me just, again, not from speculation, let me prove that from Scripture. So it says, we go back to Genesis. God says it's through the woman and her seed or her offspring, her ancestors, 
that, that Satan is going to be crushed and that Satan is going to bruise his heel. This is all reference to Jesus, our Messiah. And so what I believe is happening, Satan is trying to destroy the godly line of Seth in order to thwart the coming of the Messiah by corrupting it and making it a polluted race. If you look at Jude, watch this. It says, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority and left their proper dwelling. You know how the Bible talks about this tabernacle, your body as a home or a tabernacle or a house, okay, or a dwelling? Angels had a certain type of body or dwelling and they left that to take on what was not their proper dwelling. And watch this, they're kept. So those angels who did that, this is something that happened somewhere to Jude in, prior to Jude that happened, that there was some type, it said the angels who did not stay. In other words, he's saying there's certain angels who did this. Not all of them did this, but some did that. And those angels are now kept in eternal chains under gloomy, dark, under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day of God. Now, and then verse 7 says, this, this happened just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality. So wait, what did he say? The angels, what was their sin? He says that they didn't, they, they didn't keep their, somehow they left their physical dwelling and they're going to be judged. And what, what they were doing was just like Sodom and Gomorrah, sexual immorality. So where in the Bible do you see angels involved in sexual immorality? It has to be this story. And they pursued unnatural desire. Human women were off limits, just like the fruit was off limits to the woman. Now the women are off limits to the angels, but they, they broke through the barrier and they rebelled against God. And First Peter, I mean Second Peter talks about the same thing. It talks about if God did not spare the angels when they sinned. Talk about a certain group of angels who committed a specific sin, but he cast them into hell and committed them to the chains of gloomy darkness to be kept under judgment. Now, if that happened then, if this is all fallen angels, then who were the, the demons bothering Jesus and people in those days? This wasn't all of them. There were certain angels who participated in this sin, and those, God took those angels and said, you know what, I was going to put you in the pit at the end of Revelation, but I'm going to put you there now. So there's some angels still, so there's less than a third now roaming about bothering us. We don't know how many participate in the sin. But that, hopefully that makes sense and Scripture interprets Scripture. So, and it says, it goes on in verse 5, and it says, and God did not spare the ancient world, okay, the world prior to the flood, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, his wife, three sons, three daughter-in-laws, and he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So, what you see through the situation is many people were corrupted by this weird, bizarre sin of these fallen angels. And other, many other people died. The majority of people died, okay? And Noah, though, survives and he preserves the godly line. It came down to two human beings, Noah and Shem. And everybody else was destroyed. But guess what? Through these two, through Shem specifically, the line of Jesus, Messiah, comes out. I mean, you talk about cutting it close. Everybody in the godly line died except for basically Shem. And Noah had already given had given life to him. So God preserves it right down to the wire. So some people say, well, Gary, do you really believe in a literal worldwide flood? I believe it's literal, and I believe it's worldwide. If it wasn't worldwide, think about this. Noah had how long? 120 years? If it was a local flood, 
Why not just pack up and move? 120 years, you can get halfway around the planet if you, keep, you walk pretty steadily, right? Okay. I mean, he's got a long time to move away from this local flood. So the answer to that question is yes. I absolutely, a very big yes, I believe in a literal flood. But I believe that for two reasons, and I think you should too. Number one, there's geological evidence all over the planet of a worldwide flood. I mean, there's stories of all cultures of a worldwide flood that are beyond the, what it would If it was a local flood, then why do we have people in Tibet telling stories about a worldwide flood, which is a thousand miles away? In fact, here's some seashells found in Tibet on the mountaintops, okay? This is in West Texas, up in the hill country, in the highest places in Texas, seashells that are fossilized. This is in the Grand Canyon, not, not anywhere near any water, okay? Uh, and then this is in... Santa Cruz, California, a fossil of a whale on top of a mountain. This is recent. All over the world, you see sea creatures at the top of mountains. Worldwide flood. I mean, there's just no other explanation for it. And what's interesting is scientists, the two things they attack is creation and the flood. Because if those two things are true, the Bible's true. And those two things picture the whole plan of salvation in those two stories right there. So the second reason, though, and this is even more important, is Jesus cites the flood as a historical fact. And I'm going to side with the guy who rose from the dead <laughs> over any scientist. If, if he rose from the dead and he says Noah's true, then I believe it. Jesus says this in Matthew 24. For as in the days of Noah, before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. In other words, they're just living life without God, just going along about their day. Until the day, the day, a specific day, literal day, that Noah entered into the ark, a literal ark. So I think Jesus thinks this whole story is literal. You know, it's great to have in your nursery little Bible pictures, but when you have this boat with Noah and a couple of elephants and a couple of giraffes, it creates this weird idea in your kids like, that's not true, you know, because the, the ark was, you need to put a realistic ark in your child's nursery room. No, just kidding. You need to teach it to them later in life though, for sure. So we talked about how to walk with God as our example of Enoch. We talked about how God provides this godly line, how Messiah is going to come. And God provides this line through the, the Sethites. But Satan says, hey, you know what? I'm going to mess up the plan of salvation. I'm going to cut off the godly line. He comes close, but he doesn't do it. And so God responds to this evil with this weird angel sin going on and the, and the ungodliness of people and how every thought of their imagination was wicked continually. And so we're going to see how God responds to this evil. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Okay? Now keep that in mind. You look at the wickedness in our planet today and how it's great. Okay? You watch the news, you think like they want to put a positive spin on everything, but there's so much more evil going on behind the scenes. So much more. I mean, we can't, horrifying things that are going on. And so the wickedness is great. And the reason I reference that is because Jesus said what? As the days of Noah were, so shall the coming of some man be. So as we see things get worse and worse, Jesus' words are coming true, right? So at every intention, look at the redundancy here on purpose. Every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And then you got intentions, you got in thoughts, you got hearts, you got every, only, continually. I mean, he's just saying evil, 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 evil. Think of the most evil person you know. I'm sure they have a good thought every now and then, maybe. <laughs> but this is saying that these men, that mankind was so evil, God's like, you know what, I need to wipe this out. It's time to start over. 
And here's what's called an anthropomorphism, okay? Where, where God, some people read this and say, God regretted? Like God feels like I made a mistake? No, it's not that kind of regret. God is using human terms to help you feel somewhat about how he felt and how he thought. And again, it's called an anthropomorphism. Anthropos, meaning man, morphed into something that's not man, okay, which is God. And so you see that, like, for example, God says, the earth is my footstool. Does God literally prop up his feet on top of the earth and, and, and a footstool? No. But he's using the word footstool as something you as a human being can relate to. God doesn't literally need a footstool. Our Bible talks about how we dwell under the wings or the, of the shadow of the Almighty. Does God have wings? No, he's, not a, he's just trying to paint a picture of an eagle, which is something you could relate to. Um, and then sometimes say, well, then God remembers, as if, did God forget? No, he's trying to say, he's trying to put it in human terms so that you can relate to these things. And again, it's called an anthropomorphism. And so God says this, he says, I will blot out man. Now, this is literally like whiteout. Back in those days, they could blot things out. They used something different in whiteout. It, and it means like as it never even existed. God's not saying I'm going to cross it out. He's saying I'm going to blot it out. Man who I created from the face of the earth and man and animals and creeping things. Now it's interesting, God did not destroy all the fish. Okay? He destroyed all the birds of the air and the creeping things. And what's interesting about this is it's tied to sacrifice. Nowhere in the Old Testament does anybody bring an offering of fish. They bring an offering of birds, right? Pigeons, doves. They bring an offering of, of land animals, okay? But they don't. And so God's showing that what's going to be here is there's going to be a worldwide sacrifice also involved in this. And, it, and it's also a picture of the gospel, how they're going to die, and the ark is the picture of Christ and how everybody's going to be saved. And so he says, for I am sorry that I made man. God just trying to convey the deep sorrow of man having done all this. And basically he said, I'm going to blot them out. For what I did is I brought them into the world to be fruitful, multiply, and explode. And now we're going to go a different direction. I'm going to wipe them all out and we're going to start all over. But Noah found favor. And favor can be also, in many of your translations, means grace. Unmerited favor. That's what the definition of grace is. Notice Noah found it. He did not earn it. He did not strive for it. He did not deserve it. He just simply found it. Anybody ever found a large sum of money? Right? You didn't do anything. You just stumbled across it. You know, Noah discovered or found grace. And this is where it's important, in the eyes of the Lord. That's the only set of eyes that matter people. We live so much to impress others. The only person you need to impress is God. You need to find grace in the eyes of the Lord. Something you don't deserve. So how does God respond to your evil? Here God takes evil seriously. He destroys the planet. He destroys all the life on the planet. Very drastic, okay? What's interesting is, why didn't God use fire the first time? Because again, it's a picture of the gospel. And think about this. God buried all the human beings like that. He buried them. All the sediment buried people. That's where all our fossils come from, is God did a worldwide death and burial, but provide a resurrection through Noah. And God takes evil seriously. And God takes the evil in Gary's life seriously. That I need to repent. And I, don't, I need to watch every thought and intent of my heart 
and make sure that it's continually focused on him and not on my own selfishness. So how does God respond to our evil? He responds with grace. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace, the same thing that Noah found, you have been saved through faith. You simply trust in Christ. And this is not of your own doing. Man, isn't it? It's just sad that there's people meeting on Sunday mornings all around the world in churches that are saying, keep trying, keep being good. You be good enough, you'll go to heaven. We went to a funeral yesterday and it kept being said over and over again, take care of your business, keep working hard so you'll make it to heaven. I'm like, is that right, Patrick? Is that about what they were saying? Take care of your business? They kept saying, no mention of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It was, it was just so discouraging. And yet, it's not of your own doing. It is simply a gift. It is simply a gift. And what is a gift? Something that someone offers to you. The, the downside of that is you can reject a gift. Someone can offer you something say, no, I'm, I'm good. No thanks. God offers the gift, the most incredible gift, of his son Jesus Christ who died for every sin you committed. And he took them and he buried them in a borrowed tomb. And he rose again so that you can live again with him for eternity. All you have to do is give your life to him and receive the life that he gives for you. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for loving us. Just like you loved Noah. You looked down in a very wicked world and you chose a man and gave him grace. You looked down in our wicked world and you chose us and called us to be your, your children. Thank you for the grace of Jesus Christ demonstrated on the cross in that while we were yet sinners, the precious Son of God died in our place. Father, help us to take sin seriously because you take sin seriously. Father, if there's someone who doesn't know Christ today, I pray that the Holy Spirit of God would open their eyes and remove the blindness so that they can see the gospel of Christ and, and give their life to you because you gave your life for them. We thank you for what you're doing in our lives Pray that we would grow because of the word of God, that the seed that was planted today would not be plucked up by Satan, but it would find root and bear forth much fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. If you made a decision, maybe you're watching online or you're here today and you made a decision to trust Christ, please, let's talk. Let's have a conversation. Maybe you want to know more about the gospel. Let's talk about that. And if you know of someone that you wish was here today, uh, to hear this, please invite them. Pray that God would give you the opportunity to open up that door. Uh, I am thoroughly enjoying the reading plan that's going along with this. Uh, I know many of you are too, so it's not too late to join that. It's called Origins. It's there on the Uversion app. Uh, we're going to do question and answer time. Amanda, would you like to help me with that? One of these Sundays, Amanda's going to say, no, no thanks. Yeah. Sorry, I'll retract that. There you go. Um, I know there was one question from last week that Brandon had, and it was really good. Um, actually, and I had, so it's these two. Okay. okay. So question number one, when did Cain die? That, that's what Brandon uh, Von Ruff asked last week, and I'm like, ooh, I'm glad you asked me after church because I don't know if I know for sure. I was, felt like I was 95% sure that it, the Bible doesn't say, but I thought, well, maybe I missed that. So I went back and read and reread and just looked at it, and we don't know when Cain died. Um, what's interesting is rabbis have a story, which rabbis make stories up <laughs> that are not in the Bible, so don't quote everything by a rabbi, but they had a rabbi 
They believe, these rabbis used to believe that Cain's mark was a horn growing out of his forehead. And there was, Cain was out there in the forest because he, he wasn't allowed to farm anymore. So he was scavenging for food. And that Lamech saw the horn, thought it was an animal, and killed him with a bow. How about that for fairy tales? Yeah, what a story. So, but the Bible does not tell us. I believe, just if you follow the flow of the Bible, it would make perfect sense that Cain died in the flood. That, 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 to me, that makes sense. Again, we'll ask Jesus when we get to heaven. How did Shem have kids if it was only him and Noah? No, I meant that they're the ones preserving the line. I didn't mean to imply that they're the only ones on the ark. Shem, Ham, and Japheth all had wives on the ark. So him and Shem's, Shem, Shem and his wife produced children. Okay. What are your thoughts on the book of Enoch? So um, I believe that it could have lots of truth in it. And in fact, I believe it could all be true. But I don't think we're missing anything from our Bible. And here's why. What did um, John say about Jesus? That if we recorded everything he taught and everything he did, the volumes of this earth cannot contain, contain all the books it would be. So Jesus taught a lot of things that are not in our Bible. Jesus performed a lot of miracles that are not in our Bible. So they're true. Truth exists outside the Bible. Two plus two is four. It's not in the Bible. Okay? Enoch probably, in fact, Jeremiah, Isaiah, name any prophet. They probably prophesied a whole lot more under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but it's not in the Bible. If we had everything, we'd be walking around with the Bible like this. Like, remember the Britannica encyclopedias you used to get at your house? And you had shelves of them. That would be your Bible and more. Okay? So God chose that certain things would be in the Bible and certain things would not on purpose. So the fact that we don't have the book of Enoch doesn't mean um, that, it wasn't, uh, that it's not partly true. It just means God gave us what we did need to know in the 66 books that we do have. Um, in fact, Jude and Second Peter quote from the book of Enoch. So that either means that those parts alone were true, or maybe the whole book was true, but you're not missing any of the Word of God, okay? So you can even read, for example, some of the uh, uh, apocryphal books, like First and Second Maccabees, which are just good history, and some of the things they wrote in there did happen, but doesn't mean that's missing part of the Bible, like our Catholic friends believe. Our Catholic friends believe that's supposed to be part of the Bible. But the reason, even the first century, or the third century, third, fourth, and fifth, sixth, century Catholics did not believe in the Apocrypha until later. They introduced it later so they can back up some of their doctrines like purgatory and indulgences for the dead. That if you make an offering and you light a candle that you can help a, a, a relative who is in purgatory get out of purgatory. So they, since there were some verses in the Apocrypha that could kind of back that up and even those are twisted, that's why they started doing that. So even early Catholics didn't accept the Apocrypha. So that's a long answer to the book of Enoch. There, that's what I think about it. <laughs> this is a question from Carter. How do you know Japheth was the oldest? Um, I, there, I'll have to look at the verse. I don't remember the verse top of my head. I probably should have included it because someone would probably die. I just wanted to share that fact. If you go back and you read um, the birth order, Japheth came first. But every time they're listed, it was, when you, it's not the birth order, it's the ages so let me, I'll share that next week with a more detailed answer. That was the last question. Last question. All right, hey, let's stand and let's be dismissed and song.